Happy Hour, a podcast in which I, Tina, a real-life opera singer, tells me, Amanda, who couldn't find her glasses today because she wasn't wearing her glasses, about the plot of an opera, and then we ruin it for everyone. Each week, Amanda has no clue what opera we're going to talk about. But I do know who the composer is, and I will be chatting about them for exactly 60 seconds, and I will not cheat this time. (laughs) I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to do my damnedest. This week... Our esteemed composer is Dame Ethel Smythe. Amanda, you've got one minute on the clock. Ready, set, go. Dame Ethel Smythe was born April 22nd, 1858 in London, and astonishingly, her father vehemently opposed her starting a career in music. Thank goodness she didn't listen. After all, Tchaikovsky de- described Smythe in, her, in his memoirs as one of the few women composers who one can seriously consider to be achieving something valuable in the field of musical creation. What a lovely backhanded compliment. From 1893 to 1910, Smythe composed a series of operas, and one of them was, for more than a century, the only opera by a woman composer ever produced at the Met. From 1910 to 1912, Smythe put p- composing on hold to be a suffragette and served two months in prison with a hundred other ladies for breaking windows when her friend Thomas Beecham paid her a visit, he found her conducting the March of the Women, sung by fellow suffragettes, with a toothbrush. Smythe had several passionate affairs in her life, mostly with women, notably getting her heart eyes for Emmeline Pankhurst and Virginia Woolf. Overall, critical reaction to her work was mixed. She was alternately praised and panned for writing music that was considered too masculine for a lady composer. On her 75th birthday, her work was celebrated in a festival in the presence of the Queen. Smythe was already completely deaf, however, and could hear neither her own music nor the adulation of the crowds. In recognition of her work as a composer and writer, Smythe became the first female composer to be awarded a she received honorary doctorates in music from the time yeah, so close that was so good though that Thank was so you. good and you covered a lot of the things we're gonna talk about sweet <laughs> i love it sweet um so i just have to talk about that toothbrush thing that you said <laughs> because what you didn't say was that she stuck her hands out of the bars of her jail cell and was conducting people through the bars of her jail cell with yeah. her toothbrush well, you know, I didn't have time. <laughs> I didn't have time to say that, Dina. Obviously. I just think she's so rad. <laughs> oh, she's super rad. She's totally rad. She, so Emmeline Pankhurst, if you don't know, is like the female suffragette in London back then. She was like the leader of the suffragettes. But I believe it was Emmeline Pankhurst who, aside from Dame Smythe falling in love with her a bit, um, after most of this happened when it was more like wartime when it was the first world war emmeline pankhurst was like okay yeah let's get into the war and dame Smythe was like i'm a pacifist i don't agree and i just i know that's a small thing but i just really appreciated how she just stayed on brand she was like nope fuck the establishment her entire life i just really dig it Oh my gosh. This woman is like, she's a personal hero for so many reasons. I just, to pick her brain, to like have a conversation with this woman. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah. So we're actually going to talk about Der Wald, which is, as you mentioned, she had written an opera that was the first opera by a woman to be performed at the Met. And this is that opera. Yeah. And then in case it was too quick, it was the only opera by a female composer to be produced at the Met from the time that it was produced for the next over a hundred years. I will talk about that. Which, um, cool, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So jumping in here, Der Wald is a one-act opera of roughly 75 minutes long with both the music and the German libretto by Ethel Smythe. And she has also written libretti in French and English. Look at this bad bitch. Right? She's a multilingual writer. And, I mean, she was very close with Virginia Woolf, as we know. So I wonder if they, like, shared memoirs or something. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Um, So, Derwald had its premiere in Berlin in 1902. And its reception was lukewarm. But it also performed at Covent Garden, and it broke attendance records there. Was that, like, a long time after? No, it was the same year. Huh. 
And maybe her German wasn't as good as she thought it was. No, <laughs> what I think it is is that she writes in a very Wagnerian style. Mm, it's like musically or the libretto, both. Okay, I would say yeah, and I think the Germans were like, well, it's it's, it's not Wagner. <laughs> it's kind of Wagner, no. but is this just cheap imitation? That's my German assumption anyway. Purism, gotta love it. But the Brits loved it, so well, great. <laughs> And as you said, this opera has the distinction of being the first ever opera written by a woman to be performed at the Met. It was performed on March 12th of 1903 in a double bill with Il Trovatore. Hmm. And it held the distinction of being the only opera by a woman for an entire 113 years. The second opera by a woman to ever be performed at the Met was performed in 2016. So basically the Met doesn't pass the Bechtel test. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Met itself doesn't pass. The Met itself does not pass the Bechdel test. No, I just, that's so, like, seriously, you guys? Seriously, you guys? Stop licking the assholes of people with money and just make some fucking art, for fuck's sake. Art is made by people without penis eye. We're off to a great fucking start, Tina. I just, I can't get over the imagery of, like, Peter Gelb licking assholes. <laughs> oh, man. Well, You're welcome. <laughs> thank you for that image. Uh, <laughs> please note that the Met has not yet performed any operas by black composers. What mm-hmm. the fuck? The very first one is actually set for September of this year. <laughs> which is Fire Shut Up in My Bones by Terrence Blanchard. And I believe that premiered at St. Louis. And it well, was... It got some great reviews. I'm it excited to see it. sounds fucking dope, but at the same time, I'm angry. Yeah. Well, get this. Peter Gelb, the general director, said at first they originally didn't think they'd be able to perform it until the 23-24 season. But after the upheaval of the past year, they decided oh. to open oh. the 21-22 season with it. Oh. I'm sorry. Like, it's just particularly... In opera, I feel like it's so much too little too late. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, like, okay, good, fine. Like, no one's going to fucking pat you on the back for this. Yeah. But we know that people will. We know that old white donors will be like, look, look at what the Met is doing. It's so wonderful. It's very much not good enough. I agree. And this right here is very much going to set the tone for this entire episode. So buckle up. I'm excited. (laughs) I've got a martini. (laughs) You came prepared. Yep. I was like, I got a feeling I'm going to need some liquor tonight. Box wine is not going to cut it tonight. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm not totally kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, back to Terrible. Okay, sorry. So... Smythe was a very shrewd businesswoman. Good. To get this piece staged at the Met, she crossed the English Channel overnight to catch the Met's general manager, Maurice Grau, in Paris. She reached Paris at 7 a.m., phoned his hotel at 8 a.m., and said, I have a boat to catch back home at 11. We need to meet now. Whoa. And in her own words, she said, I told him it was one act long and could fit on any sort of bill in any kind of house. And she brought clippings of box office statements from the record-setting London premiere with her. And Grau is just like taken off guard. And he says, you're certainly a business-like woman. And after never having heard this piece, he signed the contract and she made her boat back home, her like her 11 a.m. transport across the channel, contract in hand. Hot damn. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I mean, I don't know if I should just think that he is not a discerning person or if she is just really really persuasive and i like both options but <laughs> yeah that's really cool that's he also really seemed cool. to be in her corner which i'll talk about oh more yeah in a bit, okay but yeah yeah um so Smythe was also very press savvy and she wanted to make sure her american debut was very well attended so she purposely made herself very available and very quotable to the press saying things like i have always thought if i did anything worthwhile i should 
would like to see it presented in America. From what I have heard, I hold in regard American treatment and receptivity and shall await American judgment eagerly. Oh my, just right on the ego. Yeah, yep, yep. (laughs) Just talking about how she values the American opinion. the Americans, the Americans are so superior and we need their opinions and ooh la la. That's, I mean, she's fucking smart. But she also went for the the lower ticket price people. She said, I care more for the verdict of the people in the galleries than for the opinion of any other public. Mm, so how she's controversial. Like, yeah. She's playing both sides. I love it. Yeah. I yeah. love it. Yeah. So she purposely uses her press coverage to pique the curiosity of the public. And on top of that, she's quite a quote unquote exotic composer for the Met. So people are super interested. Is it is it the vagina that made her exotic? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Vaginas wow. are exotic. Bar is so low. Bar is so low for exoticism. <laughs> so low. You do realize that 50% of people roughly have those. <laughs> so... Uh, it worked, all of her intrigue, because the box office for that evening was exactly $10,390.60, the only night of the year that the house total reached five figures. Good job. That's ex- I mean, and you know what? I'm just pissed off all over again, because with that kind of numbers, you'd fucking think that the Met might find it, I don't know, advantageous to book another female composer over the next 113 years. Or even like Ethel Smythe again. Again, yeah. (sighs) She had another opera, The Wreckers, that was more popular than this one. But of course, I make it sound like she did that all on her own. And of course, you know, the Met is a Gesamtkunstwerk, if you will. We like to throw that word around. But it takes a lot of people to put this on. And Maurice Grau purposely tried to draw a huge crowd to the audience uh, a, a huge crowd to the Met that night by star-studying the cast of Il Trovatore, mm. which it was double-billed with. And so mm-hmm. that could have partially been the draw as well. I mean, hey. it's little, little column A, little column B. Little so, column B. This is the one, <laughs> one of the ways in which you feel like he was in her corner. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that is, ladies and gentlemen, if that is in fact the case, this is an example of how to be a feminist when you are also a man who benefits from the patriarchy, use your privilege to uplift non-white cis male people. <laughs> that. I second that. Yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. So the second performance of Derwald was paired with Fille du Regiment instead of Trovatore, and it earned only $7,316.40, which is still a lot of money for the Met at that time. <laughs> right now, it's one of my student loans. <laughs> One of them. One oh, of them. boy. We, there is not enough wine in the world to <laughs> approach that subject. I actually just finally, 11 years later, finally paid off one of five student loans that I hey, have. Cheers to that. I don't even want to think about the ones that remain between my husband and I because one of them at least is one of those that's like... <laughs> almost doubled in size since it was taken not doubled but like significantly increased in size despite the fact that it has been paid every single month with a couple of like uh, of deferments in there i've consolidated all of my loans and i have paid them faithfully every month for the past six years and i owe more than when i started (sighs) moving on (laughs) Sorry, everyone. Apparently, this is the episode we're doing tonight. <laughs> so the second super fun. The second performance of Derwald with Fee was still a solid two grand more than Fee made when it was paid uh, paired with Pagliacci. So, I mean, Derwald was definitely bringing people in. Mm-hmm. Our cast of characters: we have Landgrave Rudolf, a baritone. We have Iolanthi, his mistress, a soprano or mezzo. And this is not to be confused with the fairy Iolanthi from the Gilbert and Sullivan. Not the same person. I will not confuse them. I will say I would totally name a girl Iolanthi. I think that's a really sick name. 
well, you have to have another kid. Yep. Don't know if I'm going to do that. <laughs> but in theory, <laughs> I also am like 99% sure that my husband would be like, absolutely not. <laughs> I had some pretty outlandish name choices. Most of them did not even come close to being on the short list. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's a hard thing. Naming a human is stressful. I bet it is because they have to like bear that name for the rest of their lives well you know until they're 18 but like mostly it's just it's it it, that's an element of it but also just having to like reconcile both my husband and i are very like creative opinionated types and so neither one of us was going to be like sure honey whatever you want (laughs) like yeah not a a chance (laughs) (laughs) so so no matter which way you shake it it's going to be a stressful endeavor (laughs) yeah you don't want to scar them for life either so Eolanthe. Uh would you name a kid Heinrich? Because that's our next character. I might. I might, okay. might I might do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I didn't say Eolanthe. She's a soprano or a mezzo. So I saw what? that and I was like, oh, that sounds like Tina. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, did you say Tina? I think you mispronounced Tina. So she's a soprano or a mezzo. Mm-hmm. So is it one could of those be either that like it's a soprano with a lower extension or a mezzo with an upper extension kind of it's thing? It's very middle voicey, so it can mm-hmm. be either. It's in the place where both sopranos and mezzos like to live. That does sound like Tina's voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, put that in the old noodle for later. <laughs> Said the mezzo to the stage director with a little bit of pull. <laughs> Said the mezzo to the stage director with a beverage in her hand. Strategic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I like this. Okay, so Heinrich, a young woodcutter, he's a tenor. We have Peter, a woodman, who's a bass. We have Röschen, his daughter, Röschen, Röschen. Röschen. Yeah, that one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, she's betrothed to Heinrich, our young wood hu- woodcutter. And we have a peddler with a bear? <laughs> question mark, question mark, question mark. Okay. <laughs> and then we have some choruses of peasants, huntsmen, and a chorus of wood spirits. Ooh, I like it. Okay. Okay. So, our so- opera consists of a central love story framed by a prologue and an epilogue. And the plot synopsis we have of this comes from Smythe herself, and it's quite effective, as she was a very brilliant writer in her own right. And so that's the one I'm going to give you. There was a longer one in the libretto itself, and it's just, there's like a whole bunch of needless stage direction in it. So here's what I got for you. (laughs) So this opera is a short and tragic story of paradox, Framed in the tranquility and unendingness, unendingness, say that ten times fast, (laughs) of nature, represented by the forest and its spirits. And as the curtain rises, these spirits, or elemental forces, (laughs) under the aspect of nymphs and hamadryads. What the fuck is a ham? Hang on. What the fuck is a hamadryad? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It makes me think like a hemidryad. (laughs) How's it spelled? H-A-M-A. Dryad. What kind of prefix <laughs> is Hama? I don't know. I don't understand. Hold on. Google knows. A nymph who lives in a tree and dies when the tree dies. Oh. But also, it's another term for a king cobra. So I got like a, a definition for a nymph and then a bunch of pictures of snakes. I wonder if the king cobra that is called a hamadryad is one that stays in the trees. I hope not. That's freaky. Uh, is it freakier than legless slithering things on the ground where we walk, Tina? Yeah, it is. No, it's not. I don't want snake tree tree snakes like tree Do cobras. Do you spend a lot of time in trees? I Tina? climb a lot of trees, actually. Actually, okay. It's funny that you ask that because I came up on this Facebook memory from like a decade ago, and I was like, I have just concluded that every time I go to a foreign country, I need to climb a tree there. Hmm, that's kind of a fun. That's kind of a fun thing. I, I don't climb as many trees as I used to. But I would I don't want snakes in them regardless. Yeah, I mean, I don't want snakes anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Go to Ireland. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you, St. Patrick. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, awkward. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> See, it's so funny. It always comes back to the persecution of the Jewish people, no matter yeah. what we do in opera. God damn uh, it. Between that and the Bechdel test, I feel like we need a couple of like foghorns that go off every time we circle back to the persecution of the Jews or <laughs> pass the Bechdel test. 
I wonder if this one will. I'm excited. Okay, keep going. Welcome to opera, folks. Aha. Um, okay. So where was I? Oh, yeah, hamadryads. Um, so these nymphs and hamadryads are seen engaged in ritual observations around an altar in the wood. And they are unshackled by time. And they sing of their own eternity and the brevity of all things human. And then they fade away and the altar disappears. And that is the end of the prologue. Okay. And now the real action begins. A peasant girl, Rose girl. We should just call her every time you need to say your name. I'm actually going to just like go with Rosie instead. Oh, I like that. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. Fun story. Um, when I graduated from college and couldn't find a job because recession, I got a job at Red Lobster. Red Lobster. Red Lobster. And on my very first day, I walked in and a girl who could really only be described as a former mean girl in high school, now an, an adult working at Red Lobster, was named Amanda and said to me, your name's Amanda. Mm, no, you're going to have to change that. And she was so forceful and intimidating that I did. <laughs> No. And I went by my middle name, which is Rose, the entire year that I worked there. And I've never gone by my middle name. And I, you know, I like embraced it. And I was like, I'm Rosie. I'm Rosie at Red Lobster. This is a, this is an alternate facet. No, I don't. I can't. <laughs> I'm trying to picture this person. And it's just like so incongruous with the Amanda that I know. I know. <laughs> it didn't crazy. fit at all. It didn't fit at all. But it got me through. <laughs> <laughs> I subjugated myself to a mean girl for the last time. Oh, I think that might have been God. the straw that broke the camel's back. The time in my life when I was like, I'm not going to let bitches push me around anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stand up for myself, God damn it. I'm so glad you did. Oh, my God. After the fact. <laughs> uh, after the fact, yes. Oh, my God. So dumb. I could follow that up with a story or I could just continue on the plot. Well, now you have to follow it up with a story. So, I worked at an Applebee's in high school, and my name is Tina, and if you recall that there was a movie, Napoleon Dynamite. <gasps> yeah, so I... Isn't, my... the, isn't Tina the llama? <laughs> yes. <laughs> God, and Tina, so eat your food. <laughs> my full name was Tina Eat Your Ham. <laughs> and that's what everybody calls me. I got, like secret santa socks that said i heart tina with a llama on them like well that's awesome like that's <laughs> not something you should complain about uh, and it was like attention and i was a high school girl and i was oh, like i'll just blush like and take attention. it <laughs> oh, buddy <laughs> buddy all of this because i can't pronounce that peasant girl rosie's actual name the thing is the thing is my second language is french and so i always try to go for like the uvular r so i'm like yeah i wonder what how it's even ask siri this episode is already way off the rails we're so siri off the rails stay away siri siri is not necessary here okay so our plot our actual plot this peasant girl rosie is engaged to a young woodcutter named heinrich and their wedding is supposed to be the next day. And then there's this peddler who with comes a bear. through. With a bear. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I mean, people used to people used to have bears on tethers that they would just like bring around with them and have them be like performing pets. And it was very inhumane and it makes me sad. But it's also comical in this particular context. So growing up. We used to go camping. Hang a on, lot. hang on. I just talked about a time when people used to take bears as pets and be inhumane towards them, and your yep. response was, "Growing up." Yep. Yep. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, buckle up. Here we go. So, yep. growing up, we used to go camping like every weekend or every other weekend, whatever it was. But we went to this place in Wisconsin called Pine Lake. We had like a permanent like camper there or whatever. A permanent camper? There's like a, you can have the entire camp spot for the whole summer and you just leave your trailer there. Huh. Okay. We went camping a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there was this like store. It was like a general store. We used to go there and I remember they had frozen bananas 
that you could get. They would dip them in chocolate. Oh, yeah. Anyway, outside of the store, there was a cage, a large cage, not very large because there was a bear in it. So it was. <gasps> Why was there a caged bear? A literal caged bear. Yeah. Big old. It was. A... Was it a brown bear or a black bear? I can't I bet remember. It was a brown bear. It would be weird if it was a black. <gasps> brown bears are bigger. That's true. Anyway, there was, uh, you know, like when you go to like wildlife sanctuaries and you can put a quarter in and like twist the thing and get yeah, like yeah, food and get to feed animals. Yeah, mm -hmm. Well, there was one next to the bear cage, but it was full what? of M&Ms. Oh, no. And we would put our quarters in and oh, get no, M&Ms and we would put them down a PVC pipe chute that went into the bear cage and we would watch this bear eat M&Ms. And this was, this was operating as intended by the cage maker? Yes. What the fuck? That poor fucking bear. I mean, I yeah. guess I love M&M's, but like, what the fuck? And as a little kid, I was like, this is kind of cool. I've well, never yeah. found a bear M&M's before. And like every time we went, dad, can we go feed the bear M&M's? But as an adult, looking back, I'm like, what? I'm really sad this episode. <laughs> yeah, this is really going in directions I did oh not gosh. expect. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this peddler has a bear. <laughs> Contrary to our current mood, there's general jollity uh, and peasant dance. Yes. <laughs> and then in the distance, the horn of Iolanthi sounds. And oh the merriment ceases. Oh, dear. And terror-stricken, the peasants all flee. Okay, so so we we don't like the horn of Iolanthi. No. Well, we don't like Iolanthi. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be funny if it was just the horn that people took issue with. We love her, but that sound sucks. God, she never stops playing that terrible horn. <laughs> so Iolanthi, as Ethel Smythe describes her, she is a woman of cruel instincts and unbridled passions. She's <laughs> supposed to be a witch and dreaded with superstitious fear. So is she a witch? We don't know. Superstition? reality i'm very curious to see how this pans out considering the fact that dame ethel smythe was you know a woman in a man's field in a man's world she literally left school apparently the reason that she left school was because she was displeased with both the tuition and the staff and i thought to myself i should have done that <laughs> well no, well hmm. but i thought to myself hmm yes i wonder how a female composer was treated at a music conservatory mm. in the late 1800s i wonder how the staff would have treated that person so i'm very curious to see what allegories we can draw from Eolanthe being <laughs> potentially a witch or potentially just a woman who's not conforming. I guess we're so you're out. predisposed to like Eolanthe. Yes, I am. Okay, well... <laughs> this is not going to go well for me, no. is it? No. <laughs> so Eolanthe has complete sway over Count Rudolph, who is the liege lord of the country, and she is very attracted to Heinrich... Mm. Our young woodcutter, and mm -hmm. she tries to make him enter into her service at the castle. <laughs> but he doesn't give in to her, and she tries to, you know, persuade him, and he's like, no, like, I'm marrying this girl tomorrow, and I truly love her, and, like, this woman has no sway over true love. So she seeks the revenge of the scorned woman. <laughs> so... <laughs> It, that makes it sound like it's like something you can buy at Target. Like <laughs> it's like this stock item that's the same every time. The revenge of the scorned woman. Yeah, it sounds like a beverage that I would drink. That does sound like a beverage that I would drink. Let's invent that beverage. Better yet, Abe Popowitz, president of our fan club, invent that beverage. Get back to us by next episode. We're gonna need it. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> the peddler. Um, he denounces Heinrich as, as the slayer of a deer, which is not okay here because it's on the Count's lands. Okay. And, and okay. Iolanthi. says bear man. Right. Right. <laughs> but Iolanthi's like, this is my chance to compel this woodcutter to either obey me or be punished. And Heinrich says he prefers a life which is deathless and mighty to life which is weak and brief. And then Iolanthi gives the word, and Heinrich is killed. 
for killing he, the deer. He, he prefers a life that is deathless and mighty. And mighty. Uh, yeah. To a life that is weak, weak and, and brief. brief. Um, I can't really say I can think of anybody that would say the opposite. Um, deathless. He's not talking about immortality. Though. I think it's probably referring to like eternal life in heaven. Yeah. But he also like gets the ultimate stab at her, which is that life with you would be weak and brief. Ouch. Yeah. Yes, that would sting a bit. So then Iolanthe has him killed and that's the end of our... Which also probably stung a bit. <laughs> so then the scene shifts back to our original like prologue setting and the spirits of the wood take up their ritual where they left it off and they're like, oh, that was weird. It was interrupted by the incursion of things transient. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the end of the opera. What? <laughs> yeah. So we have prologue of spirits who are outside of time. We have this really tragic story about this guy who gets killed by a woman who's lusting after him the day before his wedding to his true love. And then we have all these spirits come back and they're like completely unaffected. And time just goes on. This takes 75 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't find any video recordings. Could you find audio recordings of this? They don't exist. What? They don't exist why nobody has ever recorded this there was a performance of this opera in i think 1904 in maybe frankfurt and then it hasn't been performed since i have to hear this right yes i have to hear this let me just i'm just gonna throw this out there for you before we take our quick break the entire piano vocal score of dervald is available for free on imslp so just think about that see where those thoughts take you someone maybe me needs to produce this opera <laughs> i have to hear this i'm pissed i'm i'm genuinely like not even a recording not even wow time has not been kind to this woman go on no as i mentioned in our last episode i'm going to dedicate my year to doing pieces that are not by cishet whiteman wait yeah and awesome. i That's downloaded good. this opera as well as The Wreckers, which is her most popular opera. Yeah. And I am working on arias from both. Fabulous. I love to hear it. I love to hear it. <sighs> Normally it's so fun to make these podcasts, but sometimes they just make me mad. <laughs> then wait till uh, what I have in store for you after this break. Oh, good. It gets even better. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need to refill my wine. I just sounded like Lola from Big Mouth. Did you hear that? <laughs> Do it again. Oh, good. It gets even better. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've discovered your new hidden talent. Okay, ready to be mad? Yes. <laughs> I'm going to read you some of the reviews from the newspapers in reaction to the Met premiere of this opera. From the Telegraph. This little woman writes music with a masculine hand and his sound and logical brain, such as is supposed to be the especial gift of the rougher sex. There is not a weak or effeminate note in Dervald, nor an unstable sentiment. Which I believe is a compliment. Yeah, I, it sounds like it's supposed to be a compliment. Um, you lost me at little woman. Right. <laughs> that man might have a little penis. We'll never know because he's dead, which is nice to think about. Read me another review. <laughs> damn it. From the Daily Mail. The charm and quaintness of it will appeal more than its attempt to mirror intense human emotion. And to this extent, it is feminine, according to all tradition. What? <laughs> you know, sometimes I watch period dramas because I like the costumes and the use of language and, uh, you know, just romanticizing days of yore, I guess. It's moments like this that really make me think, wow. I sure am glad I was born when I was born. Can I tell you what really gets me about this one? Yeah, please. By when all it means. it says, 
its attempt to mirror intense human emotion mm -hmm. as if women are not capable of composing and writing intense human emotion. But nowadays, women are accused of being overly emotional all the time. And like we get our yeah. periods. <laughs> yeah, I do find that interesting. In both of these reviews, I feel like they've drawn parallels between masculinity and artistic expression that we would never hear right now. We would never hear that today. So that that is very interesting that that has kind of flipped on its head over time. I also heard in that review that the opera appears to be quaint and charming and nice and happy and la 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 more than it can attempt to mirror mm -hmm. intense human emotion and in that way is feminine, which seems like it is to say that women have the veneer of charm and the depth of their emotion is only in an attempt to imitate. Mm -hmm. You want some more? <laughs> Please, sir, may I have another? <laughs> From the commercial advertiser. It has been often and truly said that whenever a woman composer strives to take the sex element out of her work, if she succeeds, if she, succeeds she surpasses in masculinity anything that a man might do. Miss Smythe seems to have worked chiefly with this end in view, but while she has eliminated the feminine element from her music, the gentleness and sentimentality which one would expect to find in the work of a woman, her substitute is far from having the real masculine flavor. Her moments of passion become moments of blatant noise. Do they hear themselves? Do they hear themselves? I think they're quite pleased with themselves. Um, it sounds to me, like, tell me if I'm mis mishearing this because flowery language and, and double negatives and whatnot, but it sounds like what he's saying is that in order for her work to be good, it has to be masculine. But she tried so hard to be masculine in his view, but wasn't... It wasn't real masculinity. It was just noise. And so like once, it, oh my God, this, this one stings because <laughs> it's, it's really only been recently, I feel like that, and, and, and in specific industries too, like I do not think for a second that this is eradicated from the face of this earth, but in the last, I don't know, hundred years, um, at least like 50 <laughs> in the time since Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, and Jane Fonda made the iconic film 9 to 5, um, it's still been the case in a lot of situations that women have to, um, I guess, imitate or like a a assume masculine qualities of like speech, emotional um, repression in the workplace, um, masculine, like, or not masculine, but like... Uh, the, like the sense of humor, like the the more like gruff and and mm -hmm. callous sense of humor that's displayed in 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 certain industries, particularly, in order to get ahead and survive in these industries. But then they are also it's the Madonna whore complex. It's the Madonna whore complex. You have to be both, but neither. Believe it or not, this opera actually got really good reviews. Like well, it was that's very well received. All of these reviews, not, maybe notwithstanding the last one, but like these reviews kind of sound like they're trying to be compliments. Like, yeah, good job, little woman. <laughs> it didn't suck totally. We're surprised. We're just... <laughs> it's like the... Uh, it's like what we talked about with Dom uh, last week. The white guilt feeling. It's like male oh. guilt. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, my... Uh... Look, a woman did a thing. Ooh. Yeah. Well, my next quote actually has a lot to do with what we talked about with Dom last week. From Music and Drama, if Der Wald had been written by a man, it would not have been acclaimed as it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. 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 Which might be true. It might be true. Like... We haven't heard it. We don't know if it's any good or not. Maybe I'm learning a shit aria. Who knows? We'll find out. But it just sucks, you know? Like, And to that same point, like, yeah, it's possible that if this was done by a man, it wouldn't have been as well received as it was. But doesn't it suck that we even feel the need to draw that comparison because there is such a dearth of female composers? And to draw the, the parallel directly to what we talked about last week... 
isn't it shitty that we feel the need to make that comparison because there's a dearth of black composed and black uh, performed operas that we feel like we have to be like, no, well, it's just affirmative action that people are saying that they like yeah. it. They're just compensating. Excuse me while like, I roll my eyes. Like, you know what? Like, that very well may be. But if there was more of this content, we wouldn't have to fucking wonder. Mm-hmm. And it's not the fault of the composers and the performers that this content doesn't exist. It's the fault of the producers and the companies that are willing to stick their necks out and put it on the fucking stage. And, you know, funding the fucking school districts that need funding. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. Yep. I'm so angry. <laughs> next, next, So next. glad you made that drink. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to skip to the second half of this review because it's really long. But from the sun, if Miss Smythe is laboring under the amiable, amiable delusion <gasps> that a sound, healthy, perspiring young woodcutter would be in danger of losing his honor under the blandishments of a yellow-haired, riding-habited courtesan, utterly out of keeping with the forest as an inharmonious, uh, whatever. Basically, it says, you can't scare a man into carnal riot. I'm the sorry. The episode lacks the potency of conviction. This is a pity, for it is the climax of the opera. I'm sorry. <laughs> is this person? honestly trying to take issue with the believability of an opera plot an opera plot is what we're trying to hold to a high standard of logical credibility the plot of an opera here's what i think is hilarious about this because he's saying like you can't put an attractive woman on stage and think that this sound woodcutter is going to be in danger of losing his heart to her. Like, you can't do that to men. It's not believable. Yeah, that's... <laughs> like, okay, buddy. We're all very impressed with your loyalty. <laughs> I just feel like he's compensating for something when he Oh, yeah, that. absolutely. Well, or grasping at straws. Like, can't actually find anything of substance to critique. Oh, earlier he said something about woman with all her intuition cannot penetrate the corner of human existence that is male emotion. And mm. it's just if it's just one thing in life that Miss Smythe will never know unless she ceases to be a woman. It's because of the lack of penis. Yes. Mm, yep. Yep. Penetration is very difficult when you don't have a penis. <laughs> Says you. Oh! <laughs> Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> this is staying in. <laughs> I don't know. You got fingers. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh my god. What are these reviews done to us? <laughs> yeah, it's their fault. It's their fault. It's definitely not anything about us. Yeah, I'm not going to inflict any more of these upon you because they just, you get the idea. Yeah. But I, I just, I went off on this whole like diatribe in my notes about how there's this history of marginalized populations, women, BIPOC, LGBTQ, basically not cis, het, white men mm-hmm. having to go beyond proving themselves in a genre like when they write or compose or create or whatever it's considered cheap imitation of the idiom Mm. of the genre and then when they bring their own particular experience to the genre it's considered niche or quaint and it's not lauded by the masses Mm -hmm. and meanwhile mediocre art is made every day by non-marginalized populations and it's fucking celebrated can we talk about ray dunn pottery um, I don't know what this is, but I'm intrigued. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Stop what you're doing right now, listening audience, and just Google R-A-E space D-U-N-N. It's the cups that say sip and the uh, door signs that say knock and the like eye masks that say sleep. And they all just say it in this like stark black and like the white background black all caps type that looks like it's been handwritten Mm -hmm. it is the most overdone basic and completely unimaginative design that i have seen maybe ever and it is hanging on it's just hanging on 
oh my God, if I never see another piece of Ray Dunn anything or any of the like the the spinoffs that have happened in the last couple of years of like, let's just label things with the verb that you're going to use them for. Like a fucking journal that says write on the front of it or mm-hmm. ugh, I get it. Okay. I get it. But we're, like, it's fine. It's fine. It doesn't matter at all. It's totally fine. And probably there are people listening to this that are like, but I have that journal and that's fine. What I'm saying is, so the thing that really grinds my gears about it isn't that it's like quaint and kitschy and whatever. It's that that does not like that. That concept took her no time. It took her so little effort and she's making bank off of that concept. And there are people making actual art, making actual custom home decor, making things that are inspired. And they're not stocking the shelves at Marshall's and TJ Maxx and Macy's and what the fuck ever else. That person is wealthy based off of the... Again, mediocre art is celebrated. Mm -hmm. And of course... Mediocre art is also made by people of marginalized populations. Of course. Everyone everyone has the capacity to make mediocre art. But that art is looked Myself down on. Especially. But that and it's it's like taken as a representation of all of that art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't like this piece of pottery by this black person. Therefore all therefore, of these people make pottery bad made pottery. by black people is bad. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that the day marginalized artists are allowed to make bad art and they can get away with it is the day we start approaching equality in artistic yeah. regard. Yeah, I would be really curious to see if anybody can can refute that with examples of prolific and um, successful artists of color making com- comparably bad art to Ray Dunn pottery. <laughs> like, please come at me. I'm I'm serious. I. I we we talk a lot of shit on this podcast. We know I have predispositions towards feminism and racial equality that sometimes are less informed than they should be. However, if you are a person who hears this and wants to refute anything I have to say, please fucking email us at operaplothappyhour@gmail.com because I don't like to be wrong. I don't like to tell lies. If you think I'm wrong, please fucking tell me. I like to be informed. I don't think I am wrong. Mhm. But if you believe that I am wrong and have some some shit that I should read, please send it to me. Yeah. I don't think you do. <laughs> so case in point, this shit is still happening today. Yep. Have you ever heard of Gamergate? You familiar with that? Is it different than recently when, when GameStop GameStop totally like fucked the It's not GameStop stock market? Oh, okay. No, no hashtag I don't know. Gamergate. So the TLDR is that Gamergate Gamergate was this internet culture war back in maybe 2014 around that time. I mean, time. I, I feel like I've heard the phrase, like you the might hashtag have. Gamergate phrase. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So on one side of Gamergate, we have independent game makers and critics, many of whom are women and who are advocating for a more inclusive gaming experience. And then on the other side, we have misogynists and anti-feminists and trolls and people convinced that they're being manipulated by a left-leaning or corrupt press. So Mm. basically a bunch of nerdy white dudes who want their games to be all guns and boobs and and they want them to stay that way. Like nobody can be inclusive and change our games. So... There are female gamers and game creators and game critics who were personally attacked during Gamergate. Like the woman who invented the game, Depression Quest, I forget her name, but it's it's this text-based narrative game designed around her own struggle with depression. And it was getting huh. really good reviews from video game critics. And a bunch of like, well, we want less touchy-feely, more boob action jerks then don't on buy 4chan. It. Right? Yeah, but all these jerks on 4chan decide to start spreading rumors that she slept her way to good reviews for the game and just oh bullshit like God. that. Right? Right? So it's like, it's still happening. It's not yeah, just it's absolutely Ethel Smythe back in 1902. It's still fucking happening. We've made progress, but not a lot of progress, you guys. Not not where it really counts. Like, that shit still happens. There's still... And it's the same shit about, like, you know, the people whose parents were responsible for lynchings in the South were responsible for legislating that black people couldn't use the same drinking fountains. They're still alive. Mm-hmm. Their parents 
were that fucking overtly racist and they're still alive and we don't think that they were effectively brainwashed into thinking those same things to the point where it's difficult for them to unlearn that stuff and that they're not acting like this and same with sexism same with misogyny it the shit gets handed down you model for your children and then they become little reflections of you and if we look back 20 30 40 50 years and go wow the times sure were different back then yeah not that fucking different because those people's kids are shopping at the same grocery store as you it's so interesting because we think that art is like this pure thing that exists outside you know and like art is capital a art and it is good in its own right and it it you know, transcends these barriers that we put on ourselves politically. And that's just not true. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, has it ever been true? Mm-hmm. I wish mm-hmm. it were true. Yeah. That brings up a whole nother discussion about art being a job and like worthy of payment and <sighs> monetizing, even though it can be a transcendent thing. Like they're not mutually exclusive, but that's a whole nother yeah. ramble to go on. I have one more thing like one more comparison i want to draw and then we can close this out because i feel like this is just everybody's going to want to drink i need to go like do some yoga or something after this because i feel like my entire body is just a block of cement so (laughs) the science fiction fantasy writing genre is another place where this is currently happening i read a lot of fantasy a lot of sci-fi and most of it has been written by men Mm-hmm. And I am currently reading. Are you familiar with N.K. Jemison? No, she's incredible. Oh my god, mm. I'm reading a collection of her short stories. I love short stories. You know why? Because they're short. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know how much you like to experiment with like world building and like. Anyway, N.K. Jemison is incredible. She's one of my personal favorite authors, and she wrote this collection of short stories called "How Long Till Black Future Month," and it's wonderful. And if you just read the intro that she wrote, it takes like 10 minutes of your time and it is so fucking worth it. And in the intro, she says, science fiction claimed to be the fiction of the future, but it still mostly celebrated the faces and voices and stories of the past, which is crazy when you think about it, because science fiction was invented by a woman. Mm-hmm. Mary Shelley invented science fiction when she mm-hmm. wrote Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And in the early 2000s, there was an article published about how only about 15 to 20 percent of stories published in the big three science fiction magazines were Mm -hmm. by women. So this was met with what was known as the slush bomb, which is a submission bomb by over a thousand entries by women. Cool. Yeah. And it paved the way for greater inclusivity. Then, of course... Women have to write it in a way that doesn't seem too feminine or like they're trying too hard to be masculine or whatever it is, right? Like women have accepted and entertained male art and writing for how many centuries, but writing by women is considered niche. Like female art is niche. It's just, it blows my mind. And not to mention black women in the genre like N.K. Jemisin. And for a long time, she actually struggled with the idea of writing black characters because she thought people would find it niche. And she called it too risky for the lengthy investment of a novel. Oh, my God. I know. Fucking sad. And if you need something that's a little closer to home for most people, think about J.K. Rowling. She uses her first and middle initial. And then she writes a white male protagonist because that's what ex- what's accepted, most likely to be publishable. And of course, girls are more likely to empathize with boy characters than the other way around. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're totally right. And I know that I'm not using gender inclusive language here. Like I haven't yeah. don't even get me started on the exclusion of like. Yeah. Not to mention like J.K. Rowling, not the paragon of inclusivity no agreed we don't need to get into this right now but if you don't know anything about jk rowling's issues look up jk rowling turf t-e-r-f and just do a little quick reading it's important and if you're gonna buy any harry potter stuff get it from a thrift store because the story is good but the author is not and she doesn't need any more money yep but pay money for nk jemison 
Yes, that. <laughs> so I just have to tell you, there's a happy ending. Well, kind of. There's a happy ongoing story for N.K. Jemison because here we are under two decades after the slush bomb. And N.K. Jemison is the only person to ever win a Hugo Award three times in a row. And she did it in three consecutive years for her Broken Earth trilogy, which I really fucking recommend. Like, I devoured cool. that entire series in a week. <clears throat> what I'm saying is that people who have been marginalized like N.K. Jemison, like Ethel Smythe, like the woman who created that game about her depression. We have to fight to love these genres that mm -hmm. don't represent us. And like, we're here. Yeah. Like, do something for us because we're already accepting these genres kind of as they are. Like, you could go, you could take one extra step and it would make a big difference. And then take another step. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's where Ethel Smythe gets me. I normally feel some like closure at the end of an episode and I just don't feel any today. I don't feel any closure. I feel <sighs> this one hits close to home. You know, we, we had the episode last week with Dom, um, talked about blackness in opera broadly and some more specifics in there as well. And like that shit enrages me, but I am not a black person and I'm not a black woman and I can't relate to it as closely and so today, because we're talking about feminist issues, very on the nose, like we talk about feminist issues a lot on this show, mm -hmm. but it's more theoretical and um, imposed because we're not talking about female composers. We're not talking about female stories. We're talking about stories written about men by men mm -hmm. and composed by men. But today we're talking about a story written by a woman, composed by a woman, mounted by a woman and then not performed more than a few times in 113 years. And all of this discussion just really feels very close to home for me. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you say that it feels unsatisfying because it very much parallels the plot of the opera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where the spirits come back in at the end and they're like, huh, strange. Well, life goes on for us because we yeah. have no choice. <laughs> Well, we didn't die, so I guess we better keep living. <laughs> so in case it wasn't clear because we didn't call it out, we are doing a lot of female composed works this month because March is Women's History Month in the United States. Uh, but we would be remiss if we did not call out the fact that we failed to give the same level of gravity to Black History Month in February. We, we are pitifully trying to make up for it by featuring a black female composer in a couple weeks. Look, your feminism um, isn't feminism if it's not intersectional. Dude, exactly. Fucking exactly. I believe that wholeheartedly and I fail at it a lot. Yeah, no. So so we fucked up and we just wanted to call that out and, and let you know that we're aware that we fucked up. Join us. Join us in talking about a bunch of female composers and and just know that, you know, in the future, we're going to continue to strive to put diverse works uh, in the forefront as much as we possibly can. And we would love to have your suggestions. We would also love to have your suggestions for your favorite relaxing yoga poses after oh today's God. episode. Oh, my so God. You can email those to us at operaplothappyhour at gmail.com. And if you want to know more about the show, you can visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or check out our website at operaplothappyhour.com. Absolutely. And Tina, I got to say, I never had a Twitter before running this podcast's Twitter account, and I'm getting kind of good at twitter oh no you're falling down the twitter hole i know it's terrible it's like i don't know what to think about myself i don't even recognize recognize myself anymore <laughs> just send me a message when you need to be rescued it's scary so you can subscribe to the show on apple podcasts google play stitcher and spotify and while you're there unless you're on spotify um, maybe just close out of that app and go to whatever was built in on your phone when you got it at the store, because that's going to work better. Um, either way, rate and review us because it helps other people find the show algorithms. And also because it makes us feel good about ourselves and know whether or not we're doing the things that you want to hear. And we want to give a big thank you to everyone who has reached out to us or reviewed us recently, including Savannah D, Anthony R, Movie Girl 33, J-Y-C-H-R-I. <laughs> I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce I'm gonna that. I'm going to say Jaitri. <laughs> That's what I'm going to We'll go with that. <laughs> um, 
Dutchman837, and Mary Extreme. <laughs> so since this week, our first opera by a woman was the first opera by a woman ever performed at the Met. Dun, 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 dun. Our second opera by a woman will be the second opera ever by a woman to be performed at the Met. So our composer is a living composer, and her name is Kaya Sariaho. Okay. A quote <laughs> from Dame Ethel Smythe. I feel I must fight for my music because I want women to turn their minds to big and difficult jobs, not just to go on hugging the shore, afraid to put out to sea.